Awesome. Kia ora na tātou katoa toa, te epitoma o te wiki o te reo kuki ainani. Happy Cook Island Language Week. It's so awesome to see you all here this morning. If you're visiting us for the very first time, uh, thank you for choosing to share your Sunday with us here uh, at Elam Christian Centre, Manurewa. <clears throat> Uh, well, we've been journeying through the Ten Commandments, and today is our second to last week of our The Ten series. Uh, and so this morning, we're looking at commandment number two. So you can go on ahead and take your Bibles out, take your Bible apps out. Uh, we're going to pray. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, that it's alive, that it's active. And Father, we just pray that as we come around your word this morning, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us in such a new and fresh way. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word has the power to transform our lives from the inside out. We thank you, God, for your word. We love your word, and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Commandment number two, here's what it says. Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. I'm reading from the King James Version. It's there on the screen. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. For that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God bless the reading of his word this morning. <clears throat> After being enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, God redeems the people of Israel. God uh, redeems them from bondage. He redeems them from slavery. He redeems them from oppression. And so while in Egypt, the people of Israel had gotten used to their environment. They'd gotten used to their lifestyle. They'd gotten used to what it meant to be uh, things that you were meant to do in order to serve the Egyptian empire. Their only point for reference for living and identity was their state of oppression while living in Egypt. And so when God redeems them, when God takes them out of slavery, when God places them in the middle of nowhere, where they have no land, where they've got no social identity, where they've got no point of reference of how they are meant to live and exist, when God takes them out of the familiar and places them in the unfamiliar, they're not sure how to live because they've gone from being slaves to being free. They're going from being, being an oppressed people to being a chosen people. They're going from bondage to the promised land. And so God gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represent how Israel's identity, her story, and her values are being recreated and reshaped by God. The Ten Commandments were to govern how Israel was going to live as a people. The Ten Commandments were meant to serve as a foundation for the nation of Israel. The Ten Commandments were going to set Israel apart from its neighboring countries. It's important to note that even though these commandments were given to the people of Israel, they're still very much relevant for us today. The Ten Commandments show us how to love God and how to love people. One day an expert of the law comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responds and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In just two commandments, Jesus sums up all the laws and commands that we find in Scripture. In just two commandments, Jesus lets us know that the Ten Commandments deals with our relationship with God and our relationship with others. In just two commandments, Jesus lets us know that without a right relationship with God, our relationship with others will not be right. And so the question that we must ask ourselves every time we look at the Ten Commandments is simply this, 
Do we truly love God with all our hearts and our soul and our minds? And do we really love our neighbors as ourselves? And if we're really honest, we'd say that we don't. And so these commandments that not only show us how we ought to love God and love people, they show us how much we need a Savior. We've been going through the sermon series uh, for the last eight weeks, and every time I come away from church, my flesh is absolutely wounded because I realize that no matter how much I go to church, no matter how much effort I exert, no matter how much energy I try to put in, no amount of preaching, ritual keeping, box ticking, performing at my best to keep the Ten Commandments is going to get me saved. The Bible says, Romans 3, 20 to 22, for no one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. And he goes on to say in verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. The Ten Commandments show us how much we need a Savior. The Ten Commandments show us that we're not right with God, but trying to keep the law is not going to make us right. Trying to work our way in is not going to make us right. We are made right by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And you may say to me this morning, well, I'm saved, and I don't need you to keep talking to me about all the Ten Commandments. I'm not even sure why we're harping on about the Ten Commandments anyway. And you're absolutely right. By grace, we have been saved through faith. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, but grace doesn't give us license to sin. Romans 6, 1, 2, what shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that the, uh, the grace of God should abound all the more? Of course not. If we're dead to sin, how can we keep on living in it? We don't obey the Ten Commandments to get saved. We obey the Ten Commandments because we are saved. Obedience is the fruit of salvation. But if there is no love in the obedience, it's nothing but legalism. And so our obedience must be motivated by our love. Because when it is, our love for God is what makes keeping the first five commandments such a pleasure. And our love for people is what makes keeping the second five commandments such a joy. Turn to the person next to you and say, if it's got no love in it, I don't want it. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> okay, come on, let's get into the second commandment. There are two things that we see in the second commandment. Um, God reveals to us some of his characteristics. The second commandment says that uh, he's a jealous God. There's an implication that he is a God who is a judge, but he is also a merciful God. And I'm going to unpack that a bit more next week. But it also talks about how we worship. The second commandment talks about how we worship God. It says, don't make any graven images or idols, and then don't bow down to them and serve them. The Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is substituting God for something else or someone else and then worshiping them as if they were God. It could be a tree, it could be a painting, it could be a statue, it could be sport, it could be wealth, it could be an addiction, it could be your mom, it could be your son. Regardless of who or what it is, when they become the substitute for God in your life, you're committing idolatry. The first time in the Bible that the Bible describes the whole nation of Israel committing idolatry is in Exodus chapter 32, where the people are now worshiping a golden calf that they've made with their golden earrings from their golden earrings and, and gold rings. We can't talk about the second commandment without talking about the golden calf. Exodus 32 verse 1 to 5, here's what it says. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. 
We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. While Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, he's up there receiving the stone tablets that God had prepared back in Exodus 24. Meanwhile, at the foot of the mountain, the people have created a golden calf, and now they're worshiping it and calling it the God who delivered them out of Egypt. The people are tired of waiting. They don't know what's happened to Moses. They can't seem to wrap their heads around this invisible God who delivered them from Egypt, this God who has done so many miracles up to this point. And so they're saying, okay, while Moses is up there, we're tired of waiting. So we're just going to create a new God. And we're going to call this new God Yahweh, which is the sacred name of God. We're going to get this party started. In other words, they're saying we're doing things our way. This golden calf is the same God, but at least now we can do things the way that we want to do it. The story of the golden calf shows us how Israel and all of humanity tries to domesticate God and worship Him on their own terms. Idolatry is humanity's attempt to commit to a God that we can use and control. A kind of God that will help make us, you know, become famous and rich. A kind of God that will do whatever we want it to do. A kind of God that isn't real and honest with you. A kind of God who will let you get away with anything. A kind of God who will let us have our cake and eat it too. Church, that is not God. That's an idol. We see here in the story of the golden calf that the people are wanting to replace who God really is with some version of God that is more manageable. In other words, they're saying, God, we want to worship you but we want to do it on our terms. So we want to act like the rest of the world and worship you the way the rest of the world is doing it. And so they make a golden calf. They make a graven image and they call it God. The problem though, is that this golden calf is lifeless. It can't speak, it can't move, it can't save nothing. Habakkuk 2 verse 18 to 20 says this, What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us. To speechless stone images, you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The prophet is making the point that these idols that we create, they deceive us. They are not living. They are not lasting. They may be overlapped with gold and silver, but they're empty on the inside. Now you might say, well, thank the Lord that I'm not one of those people who created such things and then bowed to it and served it and called it God. You see, the thing is, not all idols are physical. In his book, uh, in his book The Counter Counter Counterfeit Gods, author Tim Keller describes idols as Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. 
Apostle Paul talks about different sinful desires in his letter to the Colossians. He lists them, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. And he calls these things idolatry. And you see, gratifying these desires will ultimately uh, cause you, ultimately become the ruling influence in your life. And so what happens is the more you seek to satisfy and gratify one of these desires, the more you will do and sacrifice anything to serve these idols. If it's more important to you than God, if it absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, if you're trusting it to give you something that only God can give you, it's an idol. When you start looking to your job to give you the contentment that only God can give you, you're in idolatry territory. When you start looking to your husband to give you the kind of joy that only God can give you, you're in idolatry territory. When you start looking to money to give you the security that only God can give you, you're in idolatry territory. When you start looking to precious stones and good luck charms to give you the consolation that only God can give you, you're in idolatry territory. When you start looking to horoscopes and tarot cards to give you the spiritual direction about your future and destiny that only God can give you, you're in idolatry territory. When you start looking to your cultural practices, customs, and rituals to give you the healing that only God can give you, you're in idolatry territory. Now, I'm not saying to negate who you are as European, as Maori, as Indian, as Samoan. The God who made this entire world made me Samoan. He made you Cook Island. He made you Filipino. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the cultural practices that we still practice even today that absolutely go against who God is. You know, I love my Samoan culture. I love how we sing. I love how we dance. I love that our culture is one of reciprocal honor and respect. I love my Samoan culture. But Jesus is above my Samoan culture. He's above it, revealed through it, and sometimes he's against it. Because there are things in my culture that go against the truth of God's word. And so when my culture says that you need to go to the cemetery and apologize to the dead, if you keep seeing them in your dreams and nightmares, I don't just go along with that. That's idolatry. I stand in my authority as a Samoan son of the living God. I rebuke that thing and tell it to leave my mind and my thoughts. When my culture says that in order to uh, stop a birthmark from growing across a child's body, you need to wrap them in a twist them around, you know, uh, recite this poem and then tattoo your mom and dad's hand. I don't just go along with that. That's idolatry. I stand in my authority as a Samoan son of the living God and I declare healing in the name of Jesus. When my culture says that you've got to cover the mirrors at night and when my culture says that you can't sleep with the moon shining on your face, when my culture says that you can't hang your hair down low at night because all of these things bring bad luck, I don't just go along with it. That's idolatry. I remind myself that the God that I serve has authority over the spiritual realm and I need not to be afraid. Church, let me ask you today, where in your life are you worshiping God on your terms? Where in your life are you worshiping God on your terms? Because as long as you're worshiping God on your terms, that's idolatry. You know, the evidence of God is seen in every single thing that he created. That includes you and me. But you see, unlike the rest of creation, we were created in the image of God. We have a spirit and our spirit has the ability to move past the physical barriers of understanding in order to relate and fellowship with God. This spiritual ability is activated by this thing called faith. God is spirit and so they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When we try to box God into our restricted understanding, when we try to domesticate God, we basically put limitations on him. 
Creation was never intended to be objects of worship. Creation was always meant to point to the creator. Acts 17, 28 to 29, for in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Romans 1.20, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Psalm 19.1 to 4, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his work, uh, craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Creation was never intended to be objects of worship. Creation was always meant to point to the creator. And so if you're here today and you realize that you're worshiping God on your terms, or you realize that there are some idols in your life that you need to do something about, here's what I want you to do. My point is really simple. Kill the idol. Kill the idol. In Genesis chapter 35, God calls Jacob and tells him to leave Shechem. Shechem in Hebrew means shoulder. It means the seat of a person's burdens. God is saying to Jacob, leave Shechem and go to a place that's called Bethel and to settle there. Bethel means the house of God. It's the place where Jacob experienced God's presence before. So God is saying, leave Shechem and go to Bethel. Jacob responds to God by telling all of his extended family to get rid of their idols. He's saying to his whole family, we're about to go up to Bethel. Ain't nobody taking no idols or no pagan gods with them. In other words, he's saying, we're not about to go up to Bethel, the house of God, the presence of God, carrying stuff from Shechem. And so he buries all their idols under a tree in Shechem. That was a word for somebody this morning. You've been trying to get to Bethel, but you can't do it looking like you're from Shechem. You can't get to Bethel burdened by the stuff you used to carry in Shechem. You can't have the presence if you are not prepared to kill the idol. If you want a breakthrough, if you want the deliverance, if you want the presence, deal with the idol, the stuff that you're burdened with from Shechem. And you know, the remarkable thing about the story is that God didn't even have to tell Jacob to do all of that. Jacob recognized that the spiritual state of his household was a problem. And so he calls them to purify themselves because their association with idolatry wasn't going to burden them back to, all the way to, to Bethel. They were going to be buried right there in Shechem. And so Jacob's whole family, they bring all of their idols, their earrings, and Jacob buries them under a tree in Shechem, and then they set off for Bethel. And what I love about that story is he leaves Bethel with a different name and a different walk. If you want to walk in the next dimension of what God is doing in your life, kill the idol. Deal with the idol. If I can ask the team to join me. And you may ask me this morning, well, how do I kill the idol? I've got some practical points to share. If it's a tangible object, a charm, a statue, a plant that you have in your home, maybe a vase or a shrine of some sort, throw it away. Burn it, destroy it, get rid of it. You don't want to give that thing any reason to pop up again in your life. That thing didn't die to give you salvation, so you don't have to keep living like your destiny is dependent on it. Get rid of it today. Now, if it's something like your job, if it's your family, if it's your sport, if it's your business, 
then here's what I want you to do. Ask yourself, does my life at work, in my family, in my sports, in my business, does my life, my behavior, what I say, my walk, my talk, my life, does it point people to God? Because if creation is meant to point to the creator, then who do they see when they see you? Do they see Jesus or do they see an idol? Because you resemble what you worship. And if it's Jesus that you worship, then guess who they're going to see on the field when a fight breaks out? Guess who they're going to see in the office when political, when it gets all political in there? Guess who they're going to see in the family meeting when the drama gets real? They're going to see the person that you worship. They're going to see Jesus through you. And now if it's material things like your house, your car, your phone, your collection of shoes, ask yourself this question. If I was to lose these things tomorrow, would I feel like I couldn't live life anymore? And if you answer yes to that question, then you've got an idol that you can't live without. And I've created a special category for money. Ask yourself this question. What am I spending my money on the most? The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Why don't you turn to the person next to you, give them a high five and say, kill the idol. <laughs> kill the idol. <laughs> and I want to conclude by saying this. Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 3 says this. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets and now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Church, there is only one legitimate representation of God and therefore only one legitimate, legitimate means of accessing Him. I'm talking about the Word who became flesh. I'm talking about the God-man. I'm talking about the image of the invisible God. I'm talking about the one true representation of God. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. We cannot approach God through an idol but through Jesus Christ alone. Church, Christianity is not about making an image of God, no matter how noble, how grand, and how spectacular it may be. Christianity is all about looking at Jesus and allowing him to conform us to his image. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, we don't ever like to close our services without giving an opportunity to people for people to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm far away from God. I wanna give you this opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And you need to know that God loves you. The God that created this world created you and he created you to know him. He created you to come into loving fellowship and relationship with him. But the Bible talks about this barrier that keeps us disconnected from God. That barrier, that disconnect is caused by this thing called sin. Sin is doing things our own way. Sin is walking in disobedience to God. But also it's that sin that keeps us disconnected from God. The penalty of that sin is death. 
The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but my friend, it didn't stop there because God in his grace, he sent his own son Jesus to die on the cross so that you and I didn't have to pay the wages of sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself what you and I were due for our sin. And right now he's extending to every single one of us his grace, forgiveness for your past, a new start right now, and a hope for your future and eternal life with him in heaven. But you see, we must turn away from sin, turn away from disobedience, turn away from doing things our own way and turn to Jesus, put our faith in Jesus, put our trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, because the Bible says whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if that's you today and you're saying, I want to be connected to God, I want to come into loving fellowship with God, I want to stop doing things my way, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life, if that's you, I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hand and then you can put it down straight away and you have no reason to be afraid or shy. This church, uh, there's no one in this church who was born holy. We are all sinners who have been saved by grace, but we want you to know we're right here with you and we've got your back. But if that's you and you're saying, I want to give my heart to Jesus, I'm going to count to three. And you can raise your hand and put it back down again. One, God loves you. Two, he's speaking to your heart right now. Three, raise your hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Brother, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. And I need you to know this prayer doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. This prayer is just an expression of you putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus. I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins. I invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you. I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, we're so proud of you. Congratulations and welcome home.